0: Hey guys, John Pallamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, April 15th, and this is the Weekly Market Update. The disclaimer, anything that you hear or see on this podcast or video is not to be taken as investment advice. It's for informational purposes only. Please do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Okay, uh, just a few slides about the general economic activity and the one thing I want to reiterate uh, vis a vis the liquidity and the money supply. You know, these rate increases that were put into place at the most rapid pace in history, here in the US at least. there's a, you know, this thing called the lag effect. And I think, you know, a lot of people I've mentioned it before several times, but I want you to keep that in mind because I'm still advocating, you know, not making a lot of investments right now, or even, you know, being very cautious at this point. Why? Because I don't think that we have felt the full effect of the lag effects of the previous rates, uh increases that we've seen over the last year they're working their way through the economy um and they these things do work with a lag effect so um i'm interested to see what the first quarter 2023 earnings show you know my thesis is that the economy will continue to slow i do not believe in this no landing or soft landing Uh, I believe that with an over-indebted economy and a large number of corporations having a lot of debt, that, uh, you know, this view that, well, the corporate companies are hoarding labor until we see the unemployment rate increase. We're really not in a recession. Uh, I've heard all these arguments, but again, you know, me being, I'm not a PhD economist. I'm not an economist at all, but I do know for a fact that The other thing that lags is the unemployment rate. And I think that um, at some point, uh, if we do see the um, economy slow substantially, which I suspect it will, then you will see layoffs. We're already seeing layoffs in the tech sector, but I think in the general economy, we'll start seeing that. And when they come, they come fairly quickly. Okay, it won't be, you know, the slow slide. So I think that's the argument that a lot of bulls and a lot of people that are Uh, minimizing what they think will happen. I mean, I'm not a fortune teller. I have no exact idea, but uh, do I think that we've seen the lows in the S&P? No, Uh, we're still substantially overvalued on many metrics, which I'm not going to get into. I've mentioned the Buffett indicator. I've mentioned the K. Shiller index. These things are all showing us still to be overvalued. So I think that there's a good possibility that earnings are going to go down and then there's going to be a reassessment by analysts and then i think that we you know see this sell off as we enter into the summer you know we're getting to that stage of the old market adage of sell in may and go away go away come back in labor day so um that might be the good thing to think about <clears throat> one thing i do want to show is this is a uh, case shiller index talking about housing um the housing market, and just to look at this comparison of a previous um, bull market, if you will, you know the rise in the k shiller index prior to the Great Financial Crisis. As you see, uh, this is an index, obviously, and you see the uh, increase between 1991 and 2006, um, and then you see the subsequent fall. After the Great Financial Crisis, uh, how how this went down, you see the amount of months it took for this to happen, and so uh, what I'm seeing here is just to juxtapose this against the current, you know, bubblicious time timeframe we went through, that was exacerbated by the Federal Reserve's um, irresponsible policies of keeping rates at zero, buying mortgage-backed securities by the hundreds of billions and encouraging uh, the speculation in the housing market led to a housing bubble that's far in excess of what we saw back here. Now, uh, this is so far the fall in the k Shiller Index. Um, uh, And you see, like I said, the amount of months, we're uh, vastly exceeding what we saw in the previous fall after the great financial crisis. So I think that's something to keep on your radar screen, you know, it's one of the things that I've said, you know, a lot of people I've said that I'm looking at the housing market, I would like to maybe buy a uh, some pro- a property or properties, but again, it's not time to do that, just because of the fact that the rate increases have not made their way through the economy, the effects that they will have on the economy, the layoffs, this will, uh, ostensibly cause another downdraft in the housing market. Now, I don't know for a fact that will happen. There's a counter argument that so many people locked in low rates that it won't be a problem. But I go back to the point of that if you lose your job and you can't make your mortgage payments, then you'll be in default at some point. So um, we'll just have to see. All these things kind of play together, right? But again, you know, we had the, if we come from the starting point of that we've seen the largest or we saw that one of the largest if not the largest financial bubble in the history of mankind at least in our lifetimes um and that it's now popping then we certainly aren't just going to have a softer, mild recession that will cure that uh now obviously it all depends on many things but uh that's kind of my thesis. That's why I'm saying, you know, there's still nothing wrong with just sitting in cash. You can, you, you can get a very good return in cash right now. There's no need, you know, you can go off on your summer vacation. I don't think anything's going to really major change until we see uh, some type of uh, major increase in unemployment or some type of financial smash or breakdown somewhere, whether that be a substantial decrease in the stock market Uh, some type of credit events somewhere, or some type of crisis in the banking system that forces the Federal Reserve to reverse course. So we'll see. But I I see these things as like, you know, you don't just cure something like this. I mean, you saw what happened after just an increase like this, after the great financial crisis, and we thought that was fairly bubblicious, if you recall, if you were around then. And this is what we have currently seen. And so to think that, you know, we're just going to have a mild reaction uh, doesn't seem viable now there was a lot of other things going on during this time and uh, around 2007-8 before that in the housing market you can watch the big short you know there's a lot of fraud i don't think there's as much fraud this time but you know we'll see i I just don't think that prices uh, are are going to uh, not go down substantially if we have a major uh, or a hard landing or a severe recession Again, something else to watch. Uh, so here's the new data on bankruptcies. We've been tracking that. Um, this is, I think, as of April 6th. And you see, you know, the last couple charts we showed was this 58 in February. This is the March data. And you see that we're substantially, up. I mean, you know, we're, we're getting now into, you know, areas that were more than during the uh, COOF. Uh, economic crisis. So I expect this to head higher. Again, it's not really being reflected in the high yield market yet. That's another area that I think is going to come under pressure that I'm looking for as a possible, uh, you know, buy at some point. But again, this is not positive And this continues to climb. So this is the kind of things that we're, that I'm looking at uh this came from steve blumenthal's uh weekly email i suggest that you subscribe to it he has a lot of pretty good information here this is his view on things but i like this uh chart he shows it occasionally you know you have this down here bear market bull market bear market which we're in and you see you know market sediment life cycle and he has a quote here from sir john templeton bull markets are born on pessimism grow on skepticism mature on optimism and die on euphoria. You know, this was the euphoric top, you know, in 2021. Um, and then as we had maximum euphoria, you know, the rate cycle reversed, we had an increase in interest rates and they began biting the, on the financial market. And then, you know, he's, this is, you know, a point of discussion. This is not a prediction. This is not set in stone, but, you know, he's thinking that we're in this area that we are, you know, declining from euphoria. We still have optimism. And I agree with that, you know, because there's still this discussion in the markets. Well, we could have a soft landing. We could have a no landing. Things may not be that bad. And uh, so you have this push and pull going on as optimism, uh, I think, will give way to skepticism. Uh, and then eventually pessimism, which will lead to a, the another buying opportunity. He Has another block here. He says we'd be better off here. Pessimism, and he's saying, well, is that going to happen? Uh, in, you know, later this year. And that's kind of what I've been saying too. If you go back to my the framework that I'm working from for this year is that you know, as this euphoria gives way, we had an initial pop at the start of the year. The market's still holding up, but it's mostly concentrated in several big stocks. The underlying market is not very good. And I suspect that's going to give way uh, as we move through the summer and into the fall uh, as earnings don't match analysts' expectations. And then that will cause a revaluation downward in the market. Uh, And then at some point, people will throw in the towel on the, it'll become almost obvious that we're going to have a recession. And and, and once that sediment shifts, then uh, that will cause a revaluation downward. So, I wanted to talk about China a little bit. You know, a lot of the impetus or view that we had around energy has to do with the Chinese economy opening back up. And we do see the data has improved. Now, there's some push and pull going on there now with um, that discussion around. Well, yes, the reopening happened. We've shown the you know congestion data, we've shown the oil demand data, the airline flights. But you know now the new uh, view is well, it's not. It's happening, but it's not happening to the scale that a lot of analysts thought. And so that could be you know a negative for you know Chinese energy demand, which you know has an overall. Effect on world oil demand, and so I wanted to show this. You can track this on this macro-micro site. And what this is is the China credit impulse, and basically, you know, it's it, it's a it's the Bloomberg credit impulse index that tracks the amount of credit that's being created in China. Basically, it's this blue line. Uh, the yellow line is the China housing price uh, is prices year over year. And then the red uh graph is the shanghai 300 index and so you can see that in previous circumstances where the credit impulse has increased greatly we've seen a you know subsequent move in the stock market upward uh not every time but uh you know it seems to correlate a lot you know a little bit and so I don't want to make a big deal out of this. I mean, it's slightly has turned up a little bit. Uh, You can go there and look at it. Uh, A little bump here. I don't think it's sufficient to, you know, went from like 24 to 26 on their index. I don't think it's, uh, you know, a big deal yet. We're starting to see maybe the housing prices bottom. You know, we'll just have to watch this and see if, you know, the Chinese put the put the pedal to the metal. There was a lot of uh, stimulus that was put in by the Chinese earlier, late last year and earlier in this year. But, uh, you know, that seems to be now some of the concern that, well, you know, I was, I was hyping that too. That was my thought, you know, once we open up China, Chinese citizens, uh, you know, have been cooped up, I mean, literally locked down for two or three years, and they would react in a similar fashion to many others. And so um, maybe that hasn't happened as to the scale that I originally thought. So this bears watching, it's not like it's in decline, but you know, it's not like, I mean, if you look at the airline data, it popped at the start of the year, then it kind of leveled out during the month of March. And then if you look at the um, air, air airline flights has again, made another turn upward. So I don't, you know, we'll have to watch this. We'll have to see what happens. Uh, I suspect, though, that, you know, this kind of fits into what I've been saying earlier, that we're kind of near the end of the tightening cycle, not just, I mean, in, in the whole world. You know, you've got the Bank of Australia has paused rates, um, rate r- rate increases, uh, even though their inflation rate is substantially higher than the, their, their uh, central bank rate. Same thing has happened in India. And so we need to see, you know, are we going to start seeing more and more? And there's websites you can go to that show you central bank activity for every week, what's going on. Yes, the majority of central banks are still, you know, in a tightening mode, but we're starting to see, you know, at least pauses start to happen. Uh, There's a lot of discussion around whether the Fed has paused, is going to pause now, if they've done their last rate increase, you know, just based on the recent weakness we saw in the CPI last week. I think it was reported, um, you know, again, if we're heading for a recession, then you can expect that prices are going to come down, uh, but uh, we'll have to see. I mean, it just, uh, it just depends. So, you know, I guess the point I'm trying to make is, are we, are we heading more as we move later into the year to more central banks pausing and and then beginning rate cutting cycles? And what does that mean? You know, I think if you look at the recent prices of gold, for example, now, has traded above $2,000 an ounce for a a decent amount of time. Um, Bitcoin has made a move. It's kind of been above 30000 here recently. And so, you know, my intuition, silver has done fairly well. Oil's kind of, you know, strengthened a little bit. And I think that, you know, if we do see central banks go into easing mode because of the underinvestment, because of the lack of supply for a lot of these materials, we really haven't seen this big crash in commodity prices. And so if we're gonna, we're at least leveling out and we're gonna start another credit cycle, then I suspect that maybe gold specifically, and even to extent Bitcoin being monetary, uh, gold being a monetary metal, you know, it sniffs these things out in advance. Remember markets are forward looking. They're, you know, Stan Druckenmiller talks about this too. When he was a young analyst, he learned this. I think he told the story where he was brought in. uh, I'm paraphrasing, of course. I'm probably going to get it not 100%. But basically, he was brought onto a team. And his boss brought him into the office and said, you know, you're a young guy. You haven't been tainted. You know, we're in the middle of a bear market. Everybody's scared on my team to do anything. You don't really know anything about this. And so I want you to lead the team. And he was leading the team. Uh, And then he got they got long assets because, you know, you want to buy at the bottom. So um, I guess what I'm saying is, and one of the things he says, you know, you can't look at current circumstances when you're looking at asset prices. Asset prices are going to always reflect what's anticipated to happen in the future, right? Look out a year or 18 months, and that's where you should be visualizing where that particular uh, stock or that company is going to be. Okay, not looking in the rearview mirror, because that's, you know, you don't drive by looking in the rearview mirror, you drive by looking forward in front of you. So, um, again, I jumped around a little bit there, but, uh, you know, we'll watch this in China if there's going to be a new credit impulse. You know, like I said, this little rinky dink thing that happened over here. I'm, I mean, there's a couple articles that came out and people are like making a big deal. Uh, this isn't, I want to see something like this or like this to really... A big move, a big move in the credit impulse, not this, you know, this is kind of a, you know, not a big deal. Maybe this is the start of a new cycle going higher. I don't know. But uh, again, we'll watch it because we know from previous uh, uh, higher credit impulses in China that that's going to move their markets. Okay, moving on. So we're going to shift here to an article that I saw that was fairly interesting. I've said this before, but uh, I'll put a link to this article and the other articles that I quote uh, in the show notes. It said, most Americans say climate change is real. They just don't want to pay for it. And I've said that before, but let's look at some snippets from the article. Americans are becoming less convinced that mankind causes climate change and are even less willing to spend as little as a dollar on their monthly energy bills to cut carbon emissions, the survey shows. The share of those who attribute climate change to humans as opposed to natural changes in the environment has fallen from 60% to 2018 to 49% in the most recent survey. Let me just pause here and comment on this. This is a result of several things in my view. Um, The undermining in trust in authorities and government and academia and the media. Why? Well, you only have to look as far back as the COOF. People realize they got sold out. They were sold a bill of goods. You know, people have lost trust in institutions. We know that from Gallup polls, okay? They don't trust the government. They don't trust Congress. They don't trust officials. They don't trust the media. Uh, they don't trust uh, academia. You know, everybody's on a mission, you know, on in their mind all these authority figures, you know, the average person that's just living their life and doesn't want to be bothered. You know, the average person generally is an okay person. They go to work every day. They have children. They have a house payment. They're trying to plan a vacation for this summer. They're planning for their kids' college, their future. They're just going through the day-to-day thing. They really don't want to be involved too greatly in politics. But yet we have these certain amount of the population, which is not that big on either side, both left wing and right wing that are constantly agitating, okay? And uh, being, and the changes that we are seeing are not, uh, they've proven to be wrong. You can't run around with your hair on fire like a lot of people do. And I'm not going to name names. These climate alarmists, from Al Gore to AOC to John Kerry, all these people, all these professors, all these people, we have to do something in the next 10 years. Well, they said that 20 years ago and 15, nothing's happened. People are like, what are you talking about? There's no disaster. And so you undermine confidence. If you make predictions and you're consistently wrong, it works in investments. It works in sports betting. It works in climate. Okay. And in science, if you're constantly making predictions, especially ones about cataclysms and catastrophes, and that's what these people have done and they don't happen then people lose confidence in the people continuing to, you know, it goes back to the, like the guy that uh, wrote the population bomb. I forget his name now. Again, I mentioned it before on the channel, but, you know, the world was going to become overpopulated. all the Malthusians that we're going to run out of resources and the stuff doesn't come true. Well, then people don't want to listen after two or three, you know, at bats, people are done listening to you. And I think that has a lot to do with it and so we get into this and this is where it comes down to here it says you know just 38% of americans would support a carbon fee of a dollar on their energy bills each month that's a 14 percentage point drop than when we when they were asked the same question 2 years ago and so people have people have got people now understand at least at some level i think that a lot of this is just a big grift not just this climate change the whole thing the whole thing whether it's medicine whether it's the environment whether it's whatever it's just a big grift people get on this and somebody's getting paid and they are being and then the average person like i said that's just living their life is asked to pay for it and they're like wait a minute what's really going on here you said the world was going to burn up i'm not seeing it you know i'm sitting here in my subdivision and you know I got to cut my lawn every week. The trees are growing. It gets hot in the summer and it gets cold in the winter. I'm really not noticing, you know, I don't see a scorched earth here and it's hard to breathe. They're not, it's not playing out like people uh, were told. So I think it's interesting. Uh, You can make your own conclusions. You know, there's people that are true believers, but I think you're losing, they've lost a lot of the uh, uh, average person. So this is the um, I wanted to talk a little about about silver. You know, uh, gold and silver. Gold being more of a monetary metal, silver kind of an, a a hybrid, right? It's uh, partially a monetary metal, but also has increasing usage uh, and has had industrial uses. And so one of the major uses for um, silver is in solar photo, photovoltaic cells and uh and panels. And as we see, we have this uh, projection, the current uh well at least up until recently uh, this was actual data, and then the projections going forward. What's interesting is is you know, I don't like to play chart porn, but uh, or rely on charts, but I do look at them occasionally. And if you look at like the silver chart going back several years, I mean, it looks like it it's close to it's either broken out to the upside or has being close to a breakout and i have a view that most of these metals are going to move higher over time anyways just because of other factors but i think you know the use of silver in panels and things like that as it escalates over time you know because this all this money that's in in legislation that has recently been passed at least in the u.s especially in europe also uh is pushing for this so we're gonna you know we're gonna go forward with this until it shows even to the most dense person that it's not going to work but we're going to squander hundreds of billions of dollars or possibly trillions of dollars and so you still have to dig the materials up for that Uh, so I just wanted to point that out that uh, you know that is a something to keep in mind if you are a precious metals investor or if you're a aficionado or if you have a positive view towards silver which I do. And here's uh, I like to put these charts on when I find them. This is from the uh, IEA Critical Minerals Outlook. And it says the sustainable energy transition will meaningfully increase demand for the key minerals needed to build green technologies. Current versus future demand from clean energy uses, thousands of tons. And so you have copper here. It shows you the current. in green here the current uh demand and then it shows you know the future demand for 2030 which is only seven years from now this isn't up like you know two percent or whatever this is it has to double you know the common upper demands forecasted to double um over the next seven years uh graphite demand up 17 times not 17 percent 17 times Nickel 11 times. you go down the list here with uh, silicon, zinc, chromium, magnesium, lithium, molybdenum. And so then it has another uh, blurb here. It says no extractive industry, oil, gas, coal, gold, iron ore, etc, has ever been able to increase global supply by 300 to 500 percent in less than a decade. Which is what these projections suggest must happen in order for the uh, sustainable energy transition to unfold as planned. So that shows you that either we need to do what has never happened before, this Herculean effort that needs to happen around mineral extraction, which by the way has never happened before, uh, and it needs to happen in the next seven years, and then you need to do and or you're going to have higher prices. I suggest you're going to have higher prices because not only will it not happen, we see no public-private partnership or no government partnership around uh, understanding this and then putting policies in place to increase the extraction of these necessary materials. What we do see is the exact opposite. We see government getting in the way of extractive industries. So the Biden administration, the U.S. government is not the only one doing this, but it's the one here. we're here in the U.S. So let's talk about it. I can, there's a whole litany. I don't, I'm not going to go through it, but you can uh, do a Google sh- search and, and find this out. You know, projects being put on hold, projects being canceled. So on one one side of the mouth, the Biden administration talks about, we need to do this energy transition. They pass this inflation reduction act which has all kinds of incentives for the sustainable energy transition and then on the other side of the house uh, this is where the schizophrenia comes from they the fact that you can't um, you you can't accomplish this because they're, they're they're trying to stop you from extracting these minerals so um, And it's not, like I said, just in the US, right? It's in Europe and other places. And so um, this is why I think that, you know, I was listening to a podcast the other day and somebody was saying, well, this whole BRICS thing is not going to work out because you can't just have a bunch of extractive countries, company, countries that are commodity producers, you know, selling natural gas to each other. But the problem is, is the sustainable energy transition, which is being the focal point for this energy transition in the developed world, uh, they don't have the materials. So where are they going to get the materials? This is what gives the bricks the power. So one of two things is going to happen. Uh, they are going to abandon the sustainable energy transition. Prices or prices for these materials are going to go higher because, again, in the history of extractive industries we've never been able to increase the extraction of these materials uh, like we will need to over the seven years but we will have to do is go to these BRICS countries Brazil, Russia, South Africa, all over Africa, Latin America to get uh, the necessary materials to uh, build out this energy transition or we won't have it I guess there's a third thing so more than likely it'll be a combination of we won't achieve we won't achieve the goals that we set out because we'll be resource constrained, and we'll be resource constrained in a higher price resource environment. I guess is that's where I think we end up. So I think this is interesting. Again, you know, it's fascinating to me that policymakers simply do not understand this or are ignoring it. Okay, and uh, so that's why I think it's a grift. It's they don't really want to have; they just want to reward certain constituencies that favor that they favor that give them money. Uh, So we'll see. Uh, Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I never want to say never. I've learned my lesson many times in life. Not to say never. You never know what's going to happen. Um, Maybe prices for materials will go sufficiently high that it draws, sucks in so much capital. But you just see, like, where are you going to get the loans to build these mines? You have these banks now, insurance companies, banks, all these people that used to lend. They're, because of their ESG, self-imposed ESG mandates, they don't want to lend to extractive industries. Okay. So they're capital constrained, even if they did want to build. And so a lot of it's going to have to come from cash flow. So it will be slower to happen. So that's kind of our whole basis of why we think that, you know, or I think that this is going to be a tremendous opportunity. That's why I say, you know, why can't you see copper at $10 a pound? so again you know this is another one of those never say never you know we we i forecasted and so did others that europe was going to have a hard time during the previous winter due to the fact that you know this cutoff or this conscious choice they made to not take russian gas anymore and you know a lot of people you know a lot of the bleacher bums jumped on me After, you know, it didn't happen, like you said, blah, blah, blah. Well, there wasn't, we're still in an energy crisis in the world because a lot of the developing countries could not bid, outbid Europe for the cargoes that they bid for. So, you know, Europe did this Herculean effort of of sucking in all of the supply of LNG, and they did it in the context of having a warm winter. And I guess my question was, coming out of this, so the bleacher bums is... Do you think that that's going to? Do you think you're going to have another warm winter next winter that's going to bail you out again? Okay, at some point, you know, you run out of luck. You don't want to run an energy policy for a uh, an entire economic block like the EU based on you know seven not coming up on a dice roll. So we'll see. Uh, We haven't. The problem isn't solved. And uh, so, again, you need to think about what happens next winter. And so here's an article from Reuters. It says, Europe facing costly winter without enough long-term LNG goals. Europe has not made enough progress in locking in long-term contracts for liquefied natural gas as an alternative to Russian pipeline supply, which may prove costly next winter as a rebound in Chinese demand could sharply tighten the market. Buying LNG to replace curtailed Russian flows helped the bloc weather the first winter of the Ukraine conflict, with Europe importing 121 million tons of the fuel in 2022, a 60% increase from 2021. That's tremendous. You know, you didn't experience the energy crisis if you were living in Europe or the U.S., but people in Pakistan and Bangladesh and other places that got outbid for these cargoes, they did experience it. But that came out of... The article continues, but that came at a cost. Europe bought largely on the spot market where prices are much higher than those negotiated in long-term deals, favored by seasoned buyers like China. According to the International Energy Agency, the cost of its LNG imports more than tripled in 2022 to some $190 billion. So here we go. I mean, again, I'm not going to base my investment thesis on whether. Uh, But I do know that there's not, you know, it's musical chairs, and at some point the music stops. So here's China, another Reuters article, China doubles down on coal ahead of potential summer blackouts. You see, China's not encumbered with these uh, fashionable ideas that are the current zeitgeist in the developed world around, you know, not using resources that are available to you. That was my little editorial prior to this article. Uh, Snippets from the article. China plans to accelerate the approval of new coal mines and fast-track the construction of already-approved mines to support its baseload energy supply during demand spikes, says an official from the National Energy Administration. Peak energy demand is expected to exceed 1.36 billion kilowatts this summer, representing, quote, a significant increase on last year, unquote. Some provinces could face power cuts this summer as a result, the NEA official warned. China's energy consumption typically spikes in the summer months due to household demand for air conditioning. So this is kind of, you know, this last sentence kind of makes me, I find it a little bit amusing because, you know, this is what I do to, you know, people in China want to be, you know, cool in the summer and warm in the winter just like people in North America and Europe. And so when you start extrapolating energy demand over time, you realize that, you know, energy's in a long-term bull market which is exacerbated by the fact of the underinvestment and the geopolitical situation that's helping to restrict molecules. Okay? We have a shortage of molecules. And it's all man-made. has nothing to do with the markets, uh, which we've talked about ad nauseum on here. And I'm not going to go into it again. And so when you start looking at these developing places, places with emerging middle classes, you know, India and China have middle classes that are substantially higher than the entire population of Europe or the United States. And they're growing. And so if you don't want to use hydrocarbons in the West, they'll just be used in the East. So I don't want to bag too bad on Germany. I've done this in the past. I've kind of let up. Uh, People get they're sick of hearing it. But I just want to to acknowledge this uh, end of an era, if you will. I don't want to do it in a sarcastic framework because it's depressing. But uh, it says it's a new era. Germany quits nuclear power, closing its final three plants. Germany's final three nuclear power plants closed their doors on Saturday. That's today. Marking the end of the country's nuclear era that has spanned more than six decades. There are those who want to end reliance on a technology they view as unsustainable, dangerous, and a distraction from speeding up renewable energy. That would be the Greens there. That would be, you know, Baerbach and, you know, uh, those type of folks. Quote, the position of the German government is clear. Nuclear power is not green, nor is it sustainable, unquote, says Stephanie Lemke, Germany's federal minister for the environment and consumer protection and a Green Party member. Quote, we are embarking on a new era of energy production, unquote. So I suspect that, you know, the energy Vendee will be, you know, I guess revived and, you know, if I was at Siemens Gamesa and Vestas, uh, those are wind turbine manufacturers, I would get ready for the orders, because I guess that's where they're heading, back to that failed policy. Again, I'm not going to bag on Germany. This is really sad. You know, the Germans are well known. Their nuclear industry was very safe. Um, it was acknowledged, I think. If you read the article, you'll see that these three plants were like in the top 10 of production in the world. Uh for the amount of, they had decades of life in front of them and this is just uh to me it's kind of sad it won't have any effect overall on uranium or where the rest of the world's going but uh you know Germany knows how to operate nuclear power plants safely and correctly they know how to build them safely and correctly and just to turn them off because you know, this is a religious type situation. You know, I mean, the Green Party was based on, you know, Atom, Croft no donkey, So nine donkey, you know, nuclear power. No, thank you. You can't, like I said, you can't, that's like a Catholic becoming a, you know, Pentecostal. It's just not going to happen. So, uh, yeah, I won't uh, bag on people, but uh, we'll just say that uh, I think you're going to find that this ends up being a poor decision. So I wanted to show this. Came across this chart. You know, these are the estimated breakeven oil prices for Latin America and U.S. oil plays. You can see um, Permian Midlands around forty bucks. Permian Delaware around twenty-five to thirty bucks. These are the breakevens. You can see Guyana, uh, the emerging oil uh, prospects offshore Guyana. You can see uh, various. You know, Mexican deep water is pretty high. Colombia onshore. Uh, so why this was in the context of an article about the recent um, mergers or how ConocoPhillips bought Concho, I think last year and what a good deal it is. Um, again, I don't think we're going to run out of oil and, but I think that, you know, uh, these companies are not, this was from an article talking about the longer term, you know, capital allocation and the fact that nobody's rushing out to build, uh, or to drill these places just because of um, you know capital constraints and the necessity to uh, of the new zeitgeist of returning capital to shareholders and working within your financial uh, cash flows, if you will. So I was actually shocked about how how, low some of the break-evens were so this is supposedly information that bloomberg got from various company data and other places i don't know i don't know the veracity of it i just thought this was interesting these uh break-evens were a lot lower than i thought look at brazilian pre-salt it's around 35 and argentinian shale is at 35 so those are interesting uh if you're somebody that uh holds shares in petrobras or you know ypf which operates in uh or um Ecopetrol and Colombia; uh, these things are paying, well, at least in the in the case of Petrobras and Ecopetrol, very substantial dividends, very high returns to cat of cash to shareholders, like into the double digits, significant double digit returns. And I think that the prices of the companies have been uh, discounted because of the supposed political situations in each country and the apprehension of people to, you know, think that, well, Brazil or Lula is a left wing, he's going to, you know, nationalize, you know, that's, that's where everybody goes. Like even YPF in Argentina is making a ton of money. So uh, these aren't, you know, this isn't Singapore or Hong Kong, but, uh, you know, or free market economies all the way, but, uh, you know, a large... A lot of the money goes to, I think, you know, you have people that are smart enough to realize that if you just kill the golden goose, that's not a good thing. And if you can get a piece of that, as these companies uh, have a piece of their their ownership publicly traded that, you know, I wouldn't put all of my money into, you know, Petrobras and EcoPetrol, but uh, if you can buy them uh, as a percentage of a dividend stock portfolio if you're you know for income i don't think it makes i don't think it is a bad thing to consider so another reason why we're long oil and gas uh this is from shubham garg the guy at uh, white tundra he does the uh twitter spaces or the uh, about individual companies and the overall oil market analysis uh, pretty good uh Pretty good stuff, but here's a tweet from him. It says, 2023 global discovered oil and gas volumes are off to a poor start with only 1 billion barrels of oil equivalent resource found in Q1, whereas 15 billion plus barrels of oil equivalent was consumed. So that's not good. You're not finding what you replaced. We haven't done that for a while, by the way. Exploration spending remains muted. Resources are becoming tougher and more expensive to find, and large producing fields are in terminal decline. And so uh, that's a very succinct way to say that why uh, many people are bullish on oil uh, and energy uh, over the next three to five years, or I am at least for the rest of this decade, until I see the spending pick up sufficiently and the underinvestment. Again, I think eventually that when prices get high enough and they stay high enough for a longer period of time. uh, Again, it traces back to what we said in the earlier slide that people are losing their faith and view in the climate change and, you know, wanting to pay for it. Uh, I think the, you know, the zeitgeist can change the sentiment can change back to saying, well, you know, oil and gas aren't really that bad. Uh, I think we have a while to go to that. It's not going to happen overnight, but uh, we'll see. And so India, you know, nobody talks about these emerging markets. When I come across these articles, I like to show them, you know, people are worried about a recession in the U S and oil demand is going to decrease and the price is going to crash, but uh, you know, you have to take in, you know, oil and energy are world, it's a world market. Okay. All 8 billion people, uh, in the world consume energy. So this is from Reuters says India's fuel consumption jumped to a record high in March, Data showed on Monday fueled by robust economic activity in the world's third biggest oil consumer. Consumption of fuel, a proxy for oil demand, rose by 5% from a year earlier. You can read here. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Let's go over to the other slide. On the the right, it says, uh, on an annual basis, sales of gasoline or petrol rose 6.8% to 3.1 million tons in March, while cooking gas, liquefied petroleum gas sales slipped and i have another chart here whoops here it is uh india's oil demand uh, hit an all-time high oil consumption of refined products hits a record high in 2022 2023 it's like 223 million tons Uh, you'll see another record this year so uh, this is what's happening right uh, in the rest of the world and so Uh, With the couple that with the underinvestment, I know, how do you get back? You know, how do you have a crash in oil prices? Not saying that it won't happen, but there's really a floor under there, right? As prices drop, guess what happens? Demand increases. And so uh, this is uh, something to keep in mind. I wanted to do a clown world segment because I found this interesting. I came upon this. I'll sneak these in once in a while because I'm really not doing the other uh, long form rumble, you know, commentaries just because they're a little bit too much uh, dabbling in stuff that I don't really want to look at and deal with. But uh, this was uh, something that came out on Twitter this week, got blown up, and it was from Anthem, which many of you probably have this as your insurance carrier, Blue Cross Blue Shield. My previous company, I had this actually. And this was a, I don't know exactly when this came out. I kind of split it, but it was a COVID-19 vaccine provider incentive program. And so this, a lot of people were saying, well, no, there's no financial incentives. These, the medical profession, the government, they have our best interest at hand. It has nothing to do with money. Why people only care about other people. Uh Uh-huh, right. And then it goes on here that uh, they had a, vaccine provider incentive program said getting vaccinated against the COOF is one of the best and safest ways people remember this is a couple years old now can protect themselves and their families as a participating practice we recognize your hard work by offering incentives for helping patients make the choice and so it says here you know results will be calculated for two time periods it says a couple years ago year and a half ago and this is how you qualify says if your practice meets the below thresholds for vaccination with at least one dose by September 1st you will receive the initial incentive payments and so this is what they got you know if they got 30 percent of the anthem members vaccinated they got a 20 percent bonus per person and you see how as the vaccination rates of the anthem people that go to their practice goes up the payments go up Then they have a final incentive based on members who are newly vaccinated, uh, and they got. uh... And I remember going to the doctor for some other issues, for checkups on some other outstanding issues that I had, and they were constantly asking me if I wanted these vaccines. I said, "I don't want that. I didn't come here for the vaccine." Okay, stop asking me that. And now I know why. I was an Anthem (laughs) insurance person. They didn't now. They should disclose that, don't you think? Why don't they disclose that? Let me just tell you, John, that, you know, it's our professional medical opinion that you should have this because, you know, at the time, many people thought that it would stop transmission and all this other thing, which have, you know, subsequently been, but what shouldn't they say? But by the way, John, I just want you to understand we're being financially incentivized to push this or to ask you to do this. They don't do that. Or, okay, they didn't do that. You know, I walked out of a practice one time or uh, left a doctor one time because I was asked to do a, get a procedure, which I thought I needed anyways. Then I find out that they didn't shop around for the best price. They sent me to an affiliated clinic that the doctors owned to get the procedure, which was a fairly significant procedure, which is fine. I don't have a problem with that, but you need to disclose that okay that you are financially incentivized to send me to this particular place or you're financially being incentivized to do this i guess you know one of the bleacher bombs is going to say well the doctors are you know they're in business it's a business that's right it is a business i fully agree with you that's how i've always approached it that's why i run my healthcare i educate myself and if the doctor says something i don't like and i tell him i'm not doing that cuz i've told doctors i'm not taking statins okay because I've looked at the data and I don't agree with you. But you're being pushed to do this. If you bring up statins again, I'm going to get a new doctor. And they get mad. I don't care if they get mad. You want me as a patient? We're going to have a discussion about the pros and cons. And you don't just get to sit there in the world of the internet, chat GBT and Google, and I'm just going to sit here like some putz while you tell me how it is. If I don't agree with the, with what you're saying, I'm going to ask questions. If they don't make sense then I'm going and then you want to get mad about it you're fired and I'll go get another one cuz you're right it is a business you're providing a service that many other people provide and you know what you can find doctors that will spend time with you that will explain to you that that care they're not just running patients through you know I got de- degraded the practice I was going to before was so large I was seeing a P I don't pay to see a PA. I don't want to see the PA. I want to see the actual doctor that I've been dealing with for three years. Well, he has too many patients now. Well, you know what? I'll help him out. I'll go somewhere else. So that was a little bit of a rant, but we we kind of suspected this was going on. We have the proof now. This is just part of it. I don't I don't want I, I kind of try to ignore these things just because it pisses me off to no avail. But uh, you know, there's gonna be true believers. There's still true believers on Twitter wearing masks and pushing these things. And, uh, you know, you just can't. Some people's egos can't take the fact. Most people I've found in the world, you know, this is one of the things that I am actually feel good about myself that has been beneficial to my life. I can look in the mirror and say, and know when I'm wrong. If somebody tells me I'm wrong, then I process it. I'm wrong. I was wrong. I'm self-introspective. And it has helped me. Many people are not that way. They cannot admit when they're wrong. They will not admit to their wrong even if it's detrimental to their uh, welfare. So how does that tie into financials? Same way. People take losses or they let losses fossilize in their account. They won't admit they're wrong. Oh, it'll come back. We've talked about this before. So again, you know, being a thinking person, being responsible for your own self, being responsible for your decisions, you know, if you want to turn everything, if you... You know, it's like somebody said, uh, Dirty Harry said in one of the movies, you know, somebody asked him, you know, why he did things his own way. And he said, you know, if you do things people's other, if you do things based on what other people say, then you're taking your life into your own hands. Okay. You're putting your life into their hands. I'm not doing that. Not in this world where, you know, standards have been degraded, things are politicized, and people allow their biases to, you know, and incentives evidently to push them into things that maybe they normally wouldn't do. And I don't want to be affected by it. All right. That's it for this week, guys. I appreciate it. Uh, channel grows. Uh, the subscriptions are down a little bit. That's kind of an indicator to me. I wouldn't say a little bit, quite a bit. That's, you know, because what am I advocating? Sit in cash and wait. There's really not much to do right now. I'm not adding new positions when I think that the economy is going to deteriorate. And I think prices are going to come in further. Now the we had a view, I had a view that energy prices were going to move higher as we move through the year based on things that are happening outside the US. That remains to be seen. You know, the re, you know, again, we have a lot of plates in there. That's why we have these weekly market updates to process the information, you know, the OPEC cuts, what's happening with the economy. These things all balance out over time. What's and so what's the net effect? That's what we're trying to arrive at and, and then forecast from that. So you're constantly processing, new informational inputs and seeing how they affect the um, the prognostications, if you will. Okay, guys, that's it for this week. Thank you, and we'll talk to you next week.